The second lesson comes from the Acts of the Apostles, the 17th chapter. I will begin reading in Acts 17 at verse 16. Acts 17 and verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the God who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is the Lord served by human hands hands, as though the Lord needed anything, since God gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, from one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and God allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God though indeed the Lord is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our, your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because God has fixed a day on which God will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And at that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. And while he had a few hours, a few days, he wandered around the city getting more and more distressed. 
Paul found the city so full of idols, distressed, deeply distressed, the Bible says. Other translations describe Paul's spirit being provoked, his soul being revolted. The city so full of idols was poking at the bear of that classically educated, rhetorically gifted evangelist, apostle, follower of Jesus. And the more time he spent, the more Paul went looking for an argument. He argued in the synagogue with the Jewish leaders and the kind of devout people who hung out there. What about all these idols? Out in the marketplace, Paul stopped people to argue. Every day he went out, out there to argue with those who just happened to be there. He debated the philosophers and some who thought he was a babbler and others who just assumed he was proclaiming some sort of other foreign god. And with his argument, Paul was telling the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. In the city full of idols, people assumed he was pitching another one. A city so full of idols where the flow of words never stopped, argument was entertainment, where worldviews clashed for sport and all babblers were welcome. Paul was stoked for an argument. So some hustled Paul away. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Scholars disagree about the nature of this change of venue. The move from marketplace to Areopagus. Was Paul being seized and bound and hauled into a trial at the Areopagus? Or was Paul being invited to a place far away from the chaos, just beyond the marketplace, far away from the synagogue, a place where he could offer his argument? And the answer is yes, both. The Areopagus, a place referred to in other translations as Mars Hill. The Areopagus is both a particular place and is a reference to the council of leaders that met to hear cases, do public business, and talk about more serious things in a less carnival-like, more meaningful atmosphere. All the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood before an adversarial and threatening world that at the same time craved telling and hearing something new, a world where arguments rule the day. You and I find ourselves smack in the middle of the Areopagus more often than we can really imagine. A place where knowledge and experience of God are challenged by the height and the depth of culture. A place that both craves and demands the most basic understandings of the Christian faith be translated afresh where you communicate and so live an ever-changing and increasingly exponentially more diverse world, a place where conversations about God's love and grace and promise come with higher stakes, where the content of speech and the behavior of life really matters, just beyond the chaos on the other side of the marketplace, far away from the church, where our lives are asked to speak you and I find ourselves smack in the middle of the Areopagus all the time. Paul rises in the sacred space of secular thought, poised for an argument. 
One can actually diagram and analyze Paul's speech that you heard in this morning's reading. His speech at Mars Hill, you can diagram it with all the tools of rhetorical, classical rhetorical criticism. You can dissect and evaluate it like something from a debate competition. But by the Book of Acts standard, where time after time, thousands upon thousands would join the community of faith, the followers of Christ, where multitudes would offer their lives in response to the spoken word and the work of the Holy Spirit, the response from those listening to Paul at the Areopagus was much less robust, far less miraculous, maybe in comparison to these other accounts in the Acts of the Apostles of Gospel Proclamation, even a bit tepid. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. Others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Doesn't quite sound like Paul won the argument. Paul hardly carried the day at Mars Hill. But then again, the gospel was never intended to be about winning, was it? The gospel never was going to be about being first. The life, the teaching, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus was always going to be foolishness, folly in the face of the wisdom of this world. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe, the foolishness of our proclamation. Paul must have known it was never about winning the argument. It wasn't about an argument, it was about pointing to a living God, a God not far from each one of us, a creator God, the one who made the world and everything in it, a God who cannot be shaped by human hands or reduced to this shrine or that idol, as if God needed anything from human hands or that God depends on our human ability to define or defend or declare. This living God gives to every mortal, to everyone. God gives life and breath. God gives all things. And God is not far from each one of us. It's not an argument. It's the affirmation of life in God's hands. A life where maybe the best can, we can do is search for, reach for, fumble after in the yearning to find this God. The living God. Remembering that in our fumbling, by grace alone, God has already found us. God already holds us. In the words of the psalmist, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Our fumbling, feeble selves and the steadfast, unconditional love of our searching God. It's not about winning the argument it's about pointing to the living God made known to us in Jesus Christ with the broken witness of our lives. I was with 25 of my Presbyterian pastor colleagues this week in Indianapolis. Our guest lecturer shared the statistic that more than 70% of congregations in the Presbyterian Church USA, our denomination, more than 70% have 150 members or less. More than a third of those 
more a third of those have under 50 members. And that was prior to the pandemic. Congregations the size of Nassau Church, of this one, and those bigger make up 1.5% of the total congregations in the Presbyterian Church USA. It's sort of a staggering statistic. The speaker also referenced the Pew study from several years ago that indicated that those who expressed no religious preference in the country, those who expressed no religious preference now exceed the number of Roman Catholics, the number of evangelicals, and far exceeds Presbyterians or Methodists or Lutherans. Interestingly, 60% of those nuns respond that, that they believe in God, and 31% say they pray at least once a week. An interesting twist on the interpretation, the use of the data. One can wring hands and benone such metrics, searching for the reasons, the places, and the people to blame. One can call for better preaching, better arguments, better strategy, better answers from the church and its leaders. The trend began before almost all of us here were born. The gospel never was about winning or being first. And when you put those statistics together, it's pretty clear that long before any of the religiously unaffiliated hear from me, they will be talking to you. You and I can ponder that day and affirm again that data and affirm again that we find ourselves smack in the middle of the Areopagus more often than we could ever imagine. A place where knowledge and experience of God are challenged by the height and the depth of culture. A place that both craves and demands the most basic understandings of the Christian faith be translated afresh. Where you communicate and so live your faith in an ever-changing, increasingly complex, exponentially more diverse world a place where conversations about God's love and grace and promise come with much higher stakes, where the content of speech and the behavior of life really matters, just beyond the chaos, on the other side of the marketplace, far away from the church, where our lives are asked to speak. The followers of Jesus are called to point to the living God for in God we live and move and have our being, and those who take the name of Jesus are called to live in response to and to point to the beauty of God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's hope, God's promise with the everydayness of our lives, always knowing and never forgetting that in our fumbling, bumbling witness that the beauty of God goes before us and comes behind us and has long ago taken hold of us. One afternoon last week, our group went to a museum in Indianapolis called the Newfields. They currently have an incredible, immersive exhibit of the Impressionist Monet and his friends in late 19th century Paris. After I experienced the exhibit, I came upon a room with a wall full of portraits that were clearly digital in nature, in beautiful frames. And at first blush, the portraits looked like a work of Monet. I stood at one of the computer 
kiosks, took a selfie, hit submit, and within a minute or two, my portrait was up on that wall in a beautiful frame. You won't be surprised that my selfie skills are pretty fumbling, even on a computer with directions that made it impossible to mess up. The technology, then, transforms those selfies, selfies with colors and brushstrokes to make them radiant with the beauty of Impressionist art. My headshot up there on the wall almost looked like something Monet would paint. I have it on my phone. I only thought about this yesterday morning or I would show it up on the wall. <laughs> my fumbling, bumbling selfie surrounded, touched by a timeless beauty. You and I find ourselves smack in the middle of the Areopagus more often than we could ever imagine. And when our lives speak by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they speak with the color and the brushstroke of the very beauty of God. Because in our fumbling, bumbling, yearning to find God and point to God in this blasted world in which we live, God has already found us and holds us tight. And out there where conversations about God and God's longing for peace and righteousness and justice and wholeness would forever change the world, out there where the conversations come with higher stakes and where the content of speech and the behavior of life really matters out there, all we have to do, what we get to do, is point to the beauty of God's love and grace, God's forgiveness, God's hope, God's promise, and point with the very everydayness of our lives. Thanks be to God.